Good morning, everyone. Didn't expect to see everyone with masks on this morning, but it's still so good to be here. If I haven't met you before, I'm Ben. I'm the community pastor here, and it's my pleasure to take us through this Good Friday scene this morning. And we're actually coming towards the end of a series that we've been in. It's called The Final Days of Jesus. The Final Days of Jesus, the week that changed the world. And we've been looking at that week as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He had confrontations with the religious leaders of the temple. He took his disciples up to the upper room and he had the Lord's Supper with them. And now we come to Good Friday where Jesus dies by crucifixion. If you're new with us in this series this morning, we're so glad you're here. You're welcome. And I encourage you to catch up on the series online. You can catch it on there. But I'd like to start off by telling you about a story that happened, a true story, in the European spring of July 1941. Now, if you know your years well, this is in the midst of World War II. And during this period, the Nazis had control over Poland, and they forced over a million people through their concentration camps in Auschwitz. And in one such camp, prisoner 5659 and 16670 met together in a moment of fate. Their names were Francis and Maximilian. Francis is the guy on the right and Maximilian the guy with the big beard. I really uh, respect that beard actually. (laughs) Wish I could grow up like that long, that's beautiful. Francis was a Polish soldier and the big bearded man, Maximilian, he was a Catholic priest. And at the end of July, what happened was a prisoner had escaped from one of the camps and the Nazi guards decided that they were going to punish some of the people, some of the prisoners as a result. So what they decided to do was pick 10 people out at random and send them into a starvation bunker to die. And as they were coming along the group of people, they were picking people out and Francis was standing in that group, nervous. And as they came along, they pointed to him. And in that moment, he cried out, my poor wife, my poor children, they'll never see me again. But in the very next moment, a stranger stepped out. It was Maximilian. And he said to the Nazis, he said, I'm a Catholic priest. I don't have a wife or children. Would you take me instead? And they did. They took Maximilian in place of Francis. And they sent him into the bunker. Eventually, Maximilian took too long to die, so they took him out and they put him to death by lethal injection on the 14th of August, 1941. Francis was saved by Maximilian. Francis himself survived the camps. He went went on to go out throughout the world telling people everywhere about what Maximilian had done for him. But I want you to think about what that moment would have been like for Francis in the midst of that camp as people were getting picked out. I mean, wouldn't he have felt completely hopeless, completely powerless? At that time, the Nazis were in charge. They were the ones in power. He was hopeless. But even under the power of the Nazis, a victory was won. What looked like simply the horrific death of the innocent Maximilian was in fact a victory of love 
whose influence continues to reverberate around the world today. And this victory is like that which Jesus won at the cross on Good Friday all those years ago. And just as in Maximilian's death, there were different powers at work in Jesus's execution. They might have looked like the winners at the time, but Jesus was in fact the victor. And this is the first of three lessons we'll look at from our passage in Luke today. And specifically, we're looking at how the powers got it so wrong. How the powers got it so wrong. Now, from the beginning of the series, we've been reminding you that Luke was writing his gospel to a man called Theophilus. We read about this in chapter one. Theophilus seems to be in need of reassurance about what he's taught about Jesus. It's like he's having doubts or something like that. And part of what Luke does in our passage is reassure Theophilus that the powers got it wrong. Now, who exactly are these powers I'm referring to? Well, there were many power players complicit in Jesus's death in Luke 23. There was the power of the crowd the mob, the angry mob that shouted out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. There was the power of the religious leaders, the chief priests, the different groups in Judaism, the leaders of Israel, some of them very powerful and wealthy men themselves. There was the power of the Roman Empire, the guys that ran the show at that stage. They had conquered Israel. They had Israel under their grips. They were represented by Pilate, and his soldiers. And in a sense, behind all of these powers was the power of Satan, deceiving, manipulating, using these players to get what he wanted. In Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus said to the religious leaders, this is your hour when darkness reigns, the kingdom of darkness he told Simon earlier that night in Luke 22, verse 31, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat. In other words, Satan was at work. He was working and scheming to put an end to Jesus and his followers. In Luke 23, what we're seeing is the clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness, which looked like it was winning, and the kingdom of God, whose leader looked like the loser. These two kingdoms have two different values. One kingdom is based on deception, violence, self-interest. The other kingdom is based on truth-telling, peacemaking, self-giving love. And we live in a world which is often used by the kingdom of darkness, a world where it looks like ultimately if you really wanna get things done, you need to participate in the way the kingdom of darkness works. Let me explain. We live in a world where sometimes we feel you need to tell lies from time to time. You need to get angry to get your point across. You need to take what's yours before someone else does. At least this is what Satan wants us to believe. This is how the kingdom of darkness works. And we often believe it. It's why we have the saying, nice guys always finish last. Nice guys are great and everything, but when it really comes to the rough and tumble of the world out there, you need to be tough. You can't be a nice guy. Nice guys always finish last. 
It's why so many people exaggerate in their resumes, in their interviews. You know, you've got to blur the lines a little bit, don't you, to, to get that job. You've just got to get your foot in the door, and once you're there, that's all good. Or sometimes it comes up in much bigger ways, like when Volkswagen lied about gas emissions in their cars. There was a huge scandal about this a few years ago. And they did this because they wanted more money, more power, more success. And if it required deception to get there, then so be it. Our world is often used by the kingdom of darkness. And we buy into its lies in big and small ways. And this lesson is nicely illustrated by the scene with Barabbas in it. Let me read it to us. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined Jesus in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Thanks a lot, Pilate. But the whole crowd, the priests, the rulers, and the people shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, an uprising in the city, and for murder. Now, in a sense, the angry mob here, by choosing Barabbas, they chose the world's wisdom. What do I mean? Well, Barabbas is a picture of how to get things done according to the kingdom of darkness. In verse 19, it says he was imprisoned for starting an uprising. Now, sometimes I think we've thought of Barabbas as this horrifically evil man that none of us would want to see alive. But if you put yourself in the Jews' shoes, he was starting an uprising against their enemies, against the Roman Empire. He probably, even if they disagree with his strategy, they probably didn't think he was a terrible person. For example, imagine if a country invaded Australia, they started a regime over us, and you hear about an Aussie trying to start a rebel movement to try and overthrow this, this regime. Now, if they get caught, you're not necessarily going to think, oh, yeah, they got what's coming to them, terrible person. You might think they're a hero. You might think, you didn't disagree with their strategy, but you might think they're a pretty good person. They're fighting for the same cause. And this is a bit more of a, a more accurate picture of Barabbas. Barabbas was a picture of how to get things done according to this world. If you want to win, if you want success, you can't just sit around being the nice guy all day loving your enemies. You need to get angry. You need to wisen up, start an uprising, overthrow your enemies. This is what Barabbas did, and he failed and Rome was going to make an example of him. Yet Jesus is the complete alternative to Barabbas. He also was a, a kind of a deliverer type. He claimed to be Israel's savior, but he wasn't starting up a violent uprising. He kept going around talking about loving your enemies. He actually said if a Roman soldier forces you to take their equipment one mile, which is legal back in that day, to go another mile, take it a further mile for them. He kept talking about blessed are the meek, the poor, the peacemakers. When the Jewish crowd had these two alternatives to choose from, Jesus the peacemaker or Barabbas the insurrectionist, they chose Barabbas. And you see, 
part of what Good Friday is meant to do is undeceive us. We might think, we might get swindled sometimes by the world to thinking that the way they do things is the path to success. But actually, in God's designs, the world's ways belong to a kingdom that is ultimately lost, that is coming to nothing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we speak a message of wisdom. He's talking about the gospel, the message of Christ crucified. We speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare, a, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden that, that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, the powers got it so wrong. They thought they were going to achieve success through manipulation, deception, violence, but they got it wrong. If they realized that Jesus' suffering and death were part of God's plan to save the world, they would not have carried it out. If they realized that self-giving love was not weakness, but the very power which would liberate us, they would not have played into God's hands. So when you look at Jesus on Good Friday, being mocked, being spat upon, being beaten, being forced to carry his cross, being crucified. Know this, he did it willingly. It was part of the plan. He did it for you. He did it to release you from the powers of evil that have a hold in your life. A victory was being won. In the midst of the world's darkest moment, light was breaking through. Luke writes to show Theophilus and us that we don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to compromise. The powers got it so wrong with Jesus and their kingdom is coming to an end. Next, Luke approaches it from the other side. After he shows Theophilus that the powers got it so wrong, he then proves that further by showing that Jesus got it so right that Jesus got it so right. This is the second lesson from our passage. You see, later on, when Luke writes his second volume that follows on from this gospel, the book of Acts, in it, Luke records a prayer from the early church. And here's part of what they prayed. They said to God, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, Jesus got it right. All that happened was according to God's plan to save the world. Jesus went to the cross knowing it was what he needed to do. And in our passage, Luke carefully alludes and refers to the Old Testament to bring this through to us. Now, he also especially alludes to the fact that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies and promises about the Messiah. Now, if you don't know already, 
in Jesus' time, the Jewish people were expectantly waiting for a Messiah. In their Old Testament scriptures, which had been finished being written about 400 years before Jesus, there were promises in there about this deliverer, about a great king who would come and save them and set up Israel as a great nation. And so they had been waiting for hundreds of years, expectantly wondering when this Messiah would come. But they had a slightly skewed picture of the Messiah. They only thought of the Messiah as a triumphalistic conqueror. And there's certainly pictures of that in the Old Testament. But there were also pictures of the Messiah as a sorrowing sufferer. And all of the promises and passages of old only finally made sense in Jesus. Now, you may be here this morning because this is what you do once a year. And if that's you, we're glad you're here. You may be here this morning because someone invited you along, you along or because your family dragged you along. We're glad you're here, but you may perhaps not be so convinced that Jesus' death was part of some sort of divine plan. Maybe you think Jesus was a great guy, he was a nice guy, but he was caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. His death was just like anyone else's. It doesn't have any sort of divine significance. Now, if that's you, if you have doubts about that, I want you to hear how Luke weaves the Old Testament into his account of Jesus' death. Because if Jesus' death does fit into promises that were made hundreds and even thousands of years before, then you have some serious grappling to do with the death of Jesus. Jesus couldn't have manipulated everything to make it look like he fit the promises of the Old Testament. There are promises in there about the place where he was born. There are promises in there about the soldiers casting lots over his clothing. There were so many things that he couldn't have just manipulated and made up. Luke shows us that Jesus genuinely fits the patterns and promises of the Old Testament and it challenges us to grasp with the significance of Jesus' death. One of the things that he shows us is that Jesus fulfills the prophetic statements in Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 was written by David. He was perhaps Israel's greatest king. And he was the recipient of some amazing promises from God. He was told that from his kingly line would come an even greater king who would rule forever, which we believe is Jesus. And he writes prophetically in Psalm 22. In, old, in the Old Testament, David is also talked of as a prophet. And sometimes he writes things that don't seem to quite fit his experience. They seem to almost speak of someone to come. And this is what happens in Psalm 22 as well. He speaks about his own anguish poetically, but it fits the experience of Jesus as the Messiah so perfectly. Let me read a little bit to you. Psalm 22, verses six to eight. David says, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now, 
David was speaking poetically here about his own suffering. But these words might as well have been written by Jesus. They just fit his experience so perfectly. You see, Psalm 22 finds its fulfillment in Jesus on Good Friday. And so too do many other promises. One of the most famous is from Isaiah 53, written a few hundred years before Jesus. It prophesies about his death. I'll just read two verses. It says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Statements like these were written hundreds of years before Jesus and they demand that we investigate the significance of Jesus' death by weaving them into the story. It's as if Luke is shouting to us and to Theophilus, this wasn't a tragedy. This wasn't a mistake. This was part of God's plan. Yes, it's horrific. Yes, it's a terrible day, but it was part of God's good plan. You see, Christianity isn't based on some guy coming out of nowhere with no context saying, God's told me a whole lot of stuff. You've got to listen to what I've heard. No, Christianity is based on Jesus who stands in line with thousands of years of scriptures in the Old Testament, who had a public ministry appearing to thousands of people performing wonders, who went to the cross, who rose again and appeared to hundreds more after his resurrection over 50 days. He had a public ministry and he fulfilled scriptures from hundreds and thousands of years before. Because of this, it gives us the confidence to believe that the good news is true news. The good news is true news. Jesus got it so right. And because Jesus got it so right, we can receive something so good, something unbelievably good this Good Friday. And this is what we learn about in our final lesson from Luke. We get it so good. Let me show you how. I want to show you by asking you some questions to consider, and then I'll point to how the cross helps. I want you to think about what troubles you most in life. What breaks your heart? What gets you down? Maybe for you, it's all the things that happen in our world, the endless royal commissions in Australia, the financial fraud, the child abuse, the divisions and hatred between countries and people of different color. Maybe you look out at the world and you see the suffering of children in Yemen dying from hunger and you think it's all too much. It's too terrible, it's too horrific and that's what really breaks your heart. Maybe for you, you're here this morning and you're racked with a sense of guilt. There's something that you've done in your past and it haunts you and you feel crushed by shame and all you long for is peace, just peace. Maybe for you, it's this sense that something is deeply wrong, that you cannot get on top of those things that trouble you. 
those addictions. Perhaps it's an anger problem, a lust issue, a drinking problem. And when you look at these things and and no matter how many times you've tried, you cannot seem to get on top of them and it makes you feel hopeless. Good Friday is so good because Jesus dealt the death blow to all of those things. He's exposed and triumphed over the powers behind the abuse and the deception and the greed that's out there. In Colossians 2 verse 15, it says that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He has dealt with our crippling guilt and shame by bearing our sins upon himself, by taking them away from us. 1 Peter 2 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And you know what? He has set us free. Free from the curse of sin, which causes us to to screw up our own lives and the lives of those around us. Romans 6, it says, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, you may look at your own life at times and in our world and feel hopeless, like Francis did in the Auschwitz camp. He looked around him and all that he saw was evil. He was completely vulnerable to the will of the guards. But you see, you too have a Maximilian. You too are not on your own. Your life is not over because like Maximilian, Jesus stepped in to take your place. He has already died your death. He has already dealt with your captors. He has set you free to live for God, to tell the world about his great love. Let me read to you a beautiful poem by a very gifted man called William Cowper. This is what he writes about Good Friday, about the cross. He says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. We get it so good in Jesus.
So what's your response to him this Good Friday? Will you receive his goodness? You see, Jesus hung in between two criminals on that Good Friday. And they represent two different responses we can take this morning. The first criminal mocked him. The other honored him. One thought Jesus was just another pretender. The other believed that Jesus was God's king, despite appearances on that day. One man lived a terrible life and ended it in anger and hate. The other man lived a terrible life and ended it in faith and hope. And Jesus said to that second man, the one who pinned his hopes on Jesus, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Which one are you? Which is your response? What's your response to the suffering of Jesus on Good Friday? Because we get it so good when we put our faith in Jesus. I love to pray for us. Come into a time of prayer. If you'd bow your heads, close your eyes. I just want to, in this moment, just speak to anyone here this morning who hasn't yet responded to Jesus. You haven't yet called him your Lord. You haven't yet received what he has done for you on the cross. You haven't yet acknowledged that he is God's king and he has saved you. If you want to do that this morning, just follow along with me in this prayer. You can echo these words in your heart. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's your faith. It's your trust in Jesus. Let me pray. And if you want to echo these words in your heart or say them out loud, it's up to you. Jesus, thank you for what you did at the cross. I turn away from my old ways. I turn away from living as if I am the king of my life. And I turn to you, Jesus. I cling to you. I look to you for safety, for righteousness, for salvation. put my faith in you and I receive all the good you purchased for me on Good Friday. And Lord, together as your people this morning, we together just want to say to you, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You are the conqueror. We are gathered here this morning to declare that a victory was won on Good Friday, an upside-down victory, a victory no one expected, but you saved us, Jesus. And for that reason, we gather to worship you. We love you, and we pray that you would totally, radically transform our lives as each day we meditate on all that you've done for us. In your name we pray, amen.